My name is Peter Murphy-Lewis, and welcome to the LTC Heroes podcast. Join me on this journey as we deep dive into how long-term care leaders, like you, are overcoming obstacles with unparalleled solutions. I hope these curious conversations contribute to the care of your residents. Today's episode with David Hoffman, I promise to be provoking, interesting, engaging. Mr. Hoffman is an important authority on the practice of health law and corporate compliance. Uh, He brings decades of experience litigating high-profile matters in both the public and private sectors. He's responsible for important legislation that has affected both Pennsylvania and at the federal level. He's gone after the bad guys for three-plus decades. Join us as we explore what's wrong with the system, what's wrong with the regulatory system, what's wrong with compliance, what's wrong with staffing, what's wrong with the mediocre middle, mediocre middle. We go through the good, the bad, and the ugly. We come back around and we question uh, how does U.S. society even perceive the elderly? We go through his personal stories with his mom at a nursing home. And as he gets older, what does he look at when he goes into a good facility? This really, really is a gem uh, for um, a leader in the LTC industry. I'm certain that you will love this conversation with David Hoffman. David, welcome to the program. Thanks, Peter. I'm thrilled to be here. Wonderful. So to get things started, David, as I warned you, we always start off with a couple questions before we dive into the meat. The, the first thing that I like to ask is, what valuable advice or content or knowledge do you believe that we will discuss today? I think we'll be able to provide your listeners with a better understanding of sort of the nursing home industry in terms of a regulatory construct, why it's so highly regulated, and what is the impact uh, of that regulation, both currently and going forward. I'm excited. Number two, what lesser known resource, book, newsletter, would you recommend I look to to understand long-term care better? I think an interesting area that people don't look at is the Office of Inspector General's work plan that they put out. Go on the OIG, HHS OIG website, and you'll see their work plan. That means it's areas of focus that they are looking into. And you just take a look at what they're looking at nursing homes. Those are hot issues that sometimes people don't even realize. That sounds like something an attorney would would read. Yes. <laughs> but and you last, can too. <laughs> I agree. It would do us all good. And lastly, uh, if you could mention one mentor that has influenced the way you think or the way you approach problems today, especially with your experience in long-term care. I go back a ways with this one, and I clerked for a judge both in state court and in federal court. His name was Anthony J. Sirica. He ended up, he's a senior judge now. He was the chief judge of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, but I was with him in the Montgomery County in state court and also was his first judicial law clerk in Philadelphia, federal judicial law clerk. And he really taught me an important lesson, which is to be a good listener and to hear and don't just assume that what you're saying is true and that uh, there are two sides to every story. 
That's good life advice outside of our industry, I'd say. Yes. <laughs> so let's jump right in. David, when you and I chatted about a week ago about things that you are passionate about, um, you know, at first I started to attack the subject as let's attack it uh, from your legal perspective. And then I realized you're really passionate about the, the larger macro problems that exist in the industry. Um, and then you were also, I want to say, inspirational or interested in talking about how we could improve the system. So why is this topic interesting to you? And then let's jump in. Well, it's interesting to me, Peter, because I'm aging and I now meet the definition of an older adult in Pennsylvania. So that's clearly uh, of interest to me. But I also had uh, my mother who has since passed away was a resident of a nursing home. So I was able to really live the, the challenges associated with nursing home care and care delivery, both from my experience in the past, but more recently, you know, as a consumer uh, on, and an advocate on behalf of my mother. And it, it really brought a lot of what I had thought and what I learned and what I consult and what I preach to my clients, really, it brought it home to me. Because it's a very different scenario when you are living uh, with uh, with someone who is a resident of a nursing home and living with the challenges. And we'll hopefully talk a little bit about how that has played out during COVID because one of the really uh, sad and devastating ramifications of the COVID virus was the lockdown that was placed upon nursing home residents to also include family members. And I wanna make a distinction between the family members who show up once in a while or don't show up at all from the family members who were actively engaged in care delivery, that if those individuals were not in the building with their loved one, that there was real uh, concern that the care would that was needed would actually occur. And so this notion of being an essential caregiver as a family member has only recently taken hold. And I think that's really an important message as we go forward, because now some facilities, some states are looking at laws to really define family members as essential caregivers. And I think that's absolutely appropriate based on my experience. And it's something I hadn't really thought about until this lockdown really took hold. And I was getting calls from friends of mine who are caring for their family members in nursing homes and unable to get in. And so I was trying to advocate on their behalf with the facilities. How did your professional experience as an attorney, uh, especially going after bad skilled nursing facilities in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s affect you now that you had your mother in the situation and as you're getting closer to that age? Well, it's it's certainly validated the need for aggressive oversight. Um, I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of, of nursing homes, unfortunately. Um, and even in the very good facilities, and my mother was in a very good facility, staffing on weekends sometimes felt like a ghost town. 
And so, you know, things don't really change from a nursing home resident perspective as to their needs. Uh, maybe there, there should be activities, there should be things to do on weekends. And um, so I was able to even see at a very good facility, the staffing differentials. And what you could see during the week when I would show up, a lot of staff, a lot of engagement. They come down over on weekend, they didn't know when I was coming. I walk up on the floor, it's like a ghost town. And so, uh, you know, that meant something to me. And I had learned that that's not really the way it should be. And I was one to speak up and say, you know, what, what can we do differently here? How can we assure that people are having their needs met seven days a week, not just five days a week? You mentioned that you've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. Let's go back to how you got into our industry and kind of walk me through a couple of those cases of the bad and the ugly, and then we'll try and wrap up with some of the good as well. Okay. Well, so back in the late 80s, I joined the Department of Aging as their chief counsel. Pennsylvania has, at the time, the fourth largest elderly population. We have uh, significant populations <clears throat> residing in nursing homes and assisted living facilities in Pennsylvania. And uh, the Department of Aging runs the long-term care ombudsman program. So I was exposed to, and the state long-term care ombudsman herself was housed within the Department of Aging. So it was someone that I was working very closely with uh, regarding advocacy around issues, complaints, and investigations. At the same time in the late 80s, believe it or not, Pennsylvania was one of the last states to pass a protective services law addressing abuse, neglect, expert, exploitation, and abandonment, both in the community and in an institutional setting. So I was fortunate enough to lead the regulatory effort, uh, implementation of regulations that rolled out our program, our elder abuse program in Pennsylvania. And that took me to investigations in nursing homes, uh, assisted living facilities, personal care homes, uh, in which I was vol involved very closely with either the ombudsman program, or in some instances, I was involved with law enforcement. And I'll never forget, Peter, if we want to talk about the absolute sort of eye-opening moment for me, and this was relatively early on in my career there, I received a call from a police lieutenant in State College, Pennsylvania, named Dan Hoffman, and no relation. And he said, David, uh, we know you rolled out this program. We know you're working with law enforcement. I'm going to tell you a story you're not going to believe, but we're hearing it from multiple individuals. Can you help us out? I said, all right, Dan, you know, give it, give it a shot. And he told me the following story, Peter. He said, we're getting allegations that we have a couple of nurses aides who are feeding feces, vomit, and urine to nursing home residents at a nursing home in State College, Pennsylvania. And I took a deep breath and I said, you're right, Dan. I hadn't heard anything quite like this before. 
I said, do you think it's got validity to it? I mean, it's it's hard to believe that that is something that would be going on. He said, well, we're hearing it from enough people that we're concerned and we want to figure out what we can do. So I said to him, well, and again, I had just come out of the Philly DA's office not that long ago and had been involved in some cases with the elderly, but nothing like this. I mean, it was more about street crime. And so I said to him, how about the notion that we hit the, pl hit the facility with a search warrant? Because it has been my experience that if, if a facility, st facility staff know that law enforcement's involved, if something like this is happening, people will come forward. They may have been too reticent to come forward, but if they know police are involved and there is no more public event than when the police pull up and they serve a search warrant, uh, everyone will know in the building and even the night staff, overnight staff will know. So he said, uh, okay, can you help me out with the warrant? So we worked together on the warrant. And I just kind of, again, we're going to look at documents. But Peter, at the end of the day, it was just to show that there's going to be law enforcement involvement and it meant business. So we worked on the documents and what we'd be trying to seize because we're not sure what we're going to find. But we're going to look at policies. We're going to look at incident reports. We're going to seize a lot of it, maybe some other records, whatever. We put the search warrant together and he said to me, David, do you mind coming with us to serve the warrant? I said, I said, Dan, you're not going into a crack house. You're going into a nursing home. And he said, yeah, but we don't know what we're going to walk into. We don't know what we're going to seize. We don't know what kind of responses we're going to get. I said, fine, I'm going to drive from Harrisburg. I'll be up there. No worries. We walk into the building. We execute the warrant. Peter, for the next two weeks, they were interviewing people day after day after day of employees, and believe it or not, it was true. The allegations were true that two, two aides were doing this horrific things just to sort of, I, I can't even speak to why they would do something this, this depraved. I mean, it, it was just appalling. But we also looked at this case, Peter, beyond just those individuals, because in a nursing home, for the most part, people know what's going on. And ultimately, the administrator and the director of nursing were charged as well by the DA's office in Center County, who did a great job with the case. You were able to prove that they were involved? That they had knowledge and didn't act, and that they recklessly endangered, by their failure to act, they recklessly endangered everyone in that building, all 140 some residents. And, and it was about to go to trial. I was gonna be the first witness and uh, the administrator and director of nursing pled guilty at that point. The individuals that were charged, again, there was no neglect of a care dependent person statute in Pennsylvania then. So we had a bootstrap into simple assault. I think they went for aggravated assault and didn't get that. Um, but they ended up charging some went to jail, others went to pro on probation, were on probation. So, so when I go back to the very beginning of the bad, that said, well, wait a minute, if th this is bad, never in a million years could I have imagined that. And it was eye-opening 
And then it made me really aware of how we have to do better in terms of allowing people to work in our building, how we supervise, you know, oversight. And, and again, it was just, it was just appalling. Mm. I think I'd like to move into the macro level and then come back and forth um, to some of your experiences. The, the reason being is because in our first chat, you mentioned that you felt like sometimes that nursing homes could be dangerous. And you also told me you felt like the system was flawed and that allowed for nursing homes to be dangerous. What do you mean by the system? The, when you talk about the system, what are the components, the variables, the elements of this that seem flawed? Okay. So I think what's interesting, again, this I'll, I, I won't bore you with too much legalese, but the Nursing Home Reform Act was passed in 1987. It was a result of an Institute of Medicine report in 1986 that really just laid out all the horribles of, of the industry. And so the Nursing Home Reform Act is one of the greatest civil rights acts ever passed that no one knows about. It sets forth all these rights of a resident has. Why it's not so known is because there's no individual right of cause, cause of action. In other words, I can't enforce as a nursing home resident or a family member, like in the civil rights world, you can bring an action for violating my civil rights. The Nursing Home Reform Act is a law that guides regulators but I have no private cause of action for violation of this act. So what does that mean? It means that it's a great law and it's a law that sets forth, it, the nursing home industry, Peter, is one of the most regulated industry in the country. Maybe the nuclear regulatory world is, is more regulated, but not by much. If you take a look at the nursing home laws and regulations, all I would advise your listeners, if you can't sleep one night, start going through these regulations, you'll be out. You'll be out, you'll, you'll get a good night's sleep. And so maybe that's what I was hoping to get out of this whole thing. People would have a good way to get a good night's sleep. So I think what's important is this is a highly regulated industry. And yet, why is it with all this regulation and all this oversight, why are bad things happening? And I'm talking about really bad things in terms of care delivery, development of pressure injuries uh, that were avoidable, uh, falls and fractures that were avoidable, malnutrition that's avoidable, really bad outcomes. Why is it that this kind of institutional setting is so high risk with all this regulatory oversight. And then it, it, it's really almost self-evident when you think about it. Imagine, if you will, Peter, a child daycare center that's licensed and regulated and a young child suffers a burn at that facility and is burned really badly. What do we think is going to happen to that owner and that facility? Public outrage and shut down within 48 hours. 
and perhaps even a live television shot when they walk out if they're arresting somebody who actually did the uh, burn the kid. Yes. Right. Same set of facts in a nursing home industry. Perhaps a citation for actual harm. Plan of correction. They won't do it again. Perhaps an arrest if there's an actual doer of a burning of an older adult, a nursing home resident. But that building's not shut down. And so why is that the case, that the same set of facts in a highly regulated industry is allowed to occur? We have a regulatory system that tolerates awful outcomes, that tolerates grossly negligent care. We have a system that's in place that says, please don't do that again, or we will find, we find you with the idea that you will come into compliance. And so that's part of the discussion. Why do we tolerate this kind of conduct? Because the buildings that have engaged in this and have allowed their employees and staff to engage in this are still operating. They're not being shut down on a one and done kind of event. So why? why? I, I just, I hear this and I'm like, you, you're walking me through and I'm like, yes, yes, yes. But why? Why? I, it's, it's, I think, even a, a, a discussion that will be happening sort of post-COVID, where we've had a lot of death of both individual residents and staff. And it's because we tolerate with this population, even though we recognize it's probably the most frail and vulnerable population out there, those people who are residing in nursing homes, that this is one step away before the end, as opposed to a kid who is just starting out. The expectation from society's perspective is that people are not getting better in nursing homes. This is their last stop. So if bad things occur on the way, perhaps we're more tolerant of it. I don't accept that. I don't accept that because you're in the twilight of your life, that you don't have dignity, that you don't have quality, that you are not treated respectfully and appropriately, and that you and that you leave this earth in a in relatively good shape. Not I mean, obviously you failed physically, but not ravaged by malnutrition or wounds and, and broken bones and you know, that's not the way, you know, John Kennedy said years ago, a society's quality and durability can best be measured by the respect and care given its elder citizens. And he said that in 1963. I mean, look at where we are in 2021 and what has happened in nursing homes for almost a year. I mean, are we really, if, if we're measuring or the quality and durability by respect and care given to its elder, elder citizens residing in nursing homes, we failed miserably. What are the pieces that put this puzzle together and make it so messy and so hard to, to improve? Well, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, you, I always start with the provider community and say, what are, what are the motives of the provider? 
And, and so one of the greatest changes I've seen over time, again, I got into this industry in 1987. And so I've been around for a while. And what I have seen is more hedge fund money coming in. And once they switch in some instances from a nonprofit to a for-profit facility, once money became, becomes the great motivator, uh, and you can tell this from the regulatory histories of nonprofit facilities versus for-profits, the money issue is a, is a real problem in this industry because, again, as we go through different layers, Medicare only pays for a limited benefit, 100 days of skilled care. So it's a limited skilled benefit that we're talking about. Vast majority of facilities have people who are Medicaid. Medicaid payments are significantly, significantly less than Medicare daily rates. And so it's a payment issue as well. So it's not just the provider who has set out to do harm, because I have to be candid with you, Peter, I'd say 95% of the providers set out to do a good job. You know, they're not in it to just make a fortune, but there's a significant percentage and maybe I'm too, you know, whether it's 90, 90%, 95, whatever it is, there is a percentage of providers who are, who put profit over care delivery. It's more about the money. And they can make money through their ancillary companies, their relationships, they, their laundry they own, transportation they own, other kinds of con contractual relationships that they have with affiliated companies. Could be that they're paying an exorbitant amount of, of money for rent because they don't own the brick and mortar, they pay rent. But it's all the same entity. It's all the same pot going to the owners with related companies. And so if that's your motive, the first area that you're going to cut, which is your most expensive cost center, is staffing. And as a result of that, the facilities that are woefully understaffed, who think it's a good idea to have one CNA per 12 residents to cover that shift, and, or even worse, I think is really the one of the roots of the evils associated with the industry. So we start with this provider. If your motives are all about the money, and there are several of them out there, and you cut staffing, you're going to have bad outcomes. It's inevitable. But then you also have a regulatory system that's underfunded because while it's a federal mandate to do these surveys, CMS contracts with the states as contract agents to do the actual state surveys, meaning they go out and they evaluate whether there's compliance in the facility. And those are state employees. In Pennsylvania, we have the Pennsylvania Department of Health where the state surveyors are housed. The problem from the survey perspective is there's no uniformity. It's been my experience that survey teams in the Philadelphia region will cite deficiencies differently than teams in the Harrisburg region 
and the other teams in the Pittsburgh region. And so we have a, a regulatory system that is not standardized, is not something you can count on to see the same thing the same way uniformly, not only in Pennsylvania, but across the country or out in California, what surveyors see. I mean, as a federal monitor, it's been my experience, we were finding things in, in um, Mississippi. Well, it turns out the homes that we were looking at hadn't been surveyed for two years. And there's a requirement to be seen every year. They haven't been seen for two years. So they're not gonna, they felt no regulatory pressure. And so that's part of it. Not only is it under-resourced from the state level and it's not uniform, but there's now animus between the regulators and the regulated. They don't trust, there's a lack of trust. They think it's all about a gotcha program. They're trying to cite them, the, the impose penalties. And the imposition of penalties, it depends on who's in power. If you have a Republican governor, it's hands off. I mean, this is sort of empirically shown. There are less, serve, less uh, deficiencies and less penalties. If you have a Democrat in, in the seat, you, there's a likely greater likelihood there be more aggressive enforcement. Now that shouldn't be the case. There should be uniform enforcement nationwide and people see things the same way. And so the regulatory system is broken in that regard. There's no trust. There's inconsistency in enforcement. You had imposition of penalties. Uh, and Peter, there's a thing called immediate jeopardy. Surveyors come in, let's assume that it's really bad, really bad, and, and, and they call immediate jeopardy. Well, by its very nature, immediate jeopardy means something you have to remedy immediately. And that should occur over a quick period of time. Well, the there were stories told about regulators keeping and building in immediate jeopardy for over a year. How can you be in immediate jeopardy for over a year? That's a failure of the regulatory system. But again, what gets lost is I look at the world through the lens of a resident. How can you allow a resident to be in a facility that's in immediate jeopardy for over a year? Is that just because the system's heavy, bureaucratic, lots of paperwork? I think, it, I think part of it is bureaucratic, but I think part of it is driven by what is the purpose of this regulatory construct? What are we trying to do here? What should we really be focused on? So it's sort of what I've learned through my compliance world, there's paper compliance and everything looks good on paper. And then there's real world compliance. That yes, the paper looks good, but the things are actually happening because I, as a prosecutor, prosecuted, prosecuted the LP, an LPN for failing to truthfully document what was going on in a care in an instance. And we can talk about that if you want, but I think part of it is focusing on what are we looking for? How do we evaluate a good facility? Should our regulatory construct look to outcomes? If I'm doing really well, people are getting better, they're getting physical therapy, I'm turning them around, they're, they're doing very well. My long-term residents, 
there's very little decline in mobility. There's little decline in, in uh, cognitive issues, that there's good activities, that they're stimulated, that their quality of life scores are really good. I mean, these are the metrics we should be losing, using. If the things aren't documented properly, okay, that's an issue, but should that be a, the, the biggest motivator? I mean, should we be really outcome-based and, and focus on, on what's happening in the building and, and satisfaction from the residents? That seems to me, I mean, Peter, I can walk into a building and I'll know pretty quickly what I'm dealing with. I go around mealtime. I see and I watch. Are, is staff responsive? Are people being served? So if we have tables and it's you, me, and two of our friends, does the meal come out at the same time? Does, if I need assistance with feeding, is someone there to help me right when the food comes out? So I'm eating it when it's hot. Or is it the case where, Peter, you're finished your meal. I No one's come to help me. The food's now cold. And I'm sitting there. And then maybe somebody comes by late to help me. Hmm. Right? That's a pretty telltale sign of what's going on in the building and meeting the residents' needs. Because when I think about it from a resident perspective, what do I have to look forward to? I'm not looking forward to the medication coming into the medication delivery. I'm looking forward to meals and activities. And so I'll watch activities. Are people brought to it? Are people brought down? If people need to come down from the second floor to the first floor, who's bringing the residents down? Are they working as a team with the CNAs and the activities people? You know, is there teamwork? Is there interactive kind of activities? You know, the things that are important to me from a resident's perspective. How would you turn that into metrics then? If you're thinking about, if I hear you right, it sounds like we're talking about looking at outcomes from the positive point of view, from the view of a resident, whereas currently the system's set up to document the care we do and it's essentially avoid penalties by documenting that we did everything. And you're talking a, a different metric is what does the resident look like or what does the resident look like? How would, how would you set up a metric that way? Well, there is data that the surveyors focus on. So don't get me wrong. There is data in terms of areas of concern of medication, delivery, I mean, med pass, things like that. But also if people are on psychotropic medications, which is a big deal. The concern is, you know, I have some behavioral issues. The first thing you give me is a psychotropic and you snow me. And I'm then I'm quiet, obviously, but my quality of life now is down the toilet, to be candid with you, because I'm, you know, I'm being I'm being medicated. I'm being chemically restrained in some ways. And so there are metrics that look at percentages of people on antipsychotic medications and other antidepressants. And what is that telling us about the building? And so I see a large number of antidepressants. What's going on here? You know, who's ordering this? Why is everybody depressed? Are they really evaluating depression appropriately? And so, you know, those are the kinds of things. And from a regulatory perspective, 
Those are the questions I would be asking. How are they addressing these people? How are they, these residents? And are they meeting their needs? And how are they interacting with their uh, families? Is the medical director really engaged? There were years, Peter, that we had this joke when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office that the medical directors were practicing wave therapy. I don't know if you're familiar with wave therapy. They come in and wave. They don't really see the resident. They sign the charts and that's it. They're not really seeing these residents. Well, that's not the role of the attending physician and the medical director. And yes, it's a nursing home and most of the care is nursing in nature. And in fact, if we dig a little deeper, the most of the care is nurses aides who are delivering 95% of the care in terms of turning, repositioning, range of motion, assistance with going to the bathroom, assistance with uh, feeding. These are nurses aides who are delivering the care, changing in case there, there's been some need uh, as a result of incontinence care. I mean, that's who's delivering the care. But yes, there's a big role for medical directorship to make sure that they're not inappropriately restraining, chemically restraining or physically restraining or engaged in inappropriate medical care and oversight. So it's a team approach. It's a nursing home, but is you know what what's the medical director doing to make sure that that's the care needs are being met? I want to be devil's advocate if you'll if you'll allow me to and see and question if this is simpler than saying it's the system. If you say that 90-95% of owners, operators and facilities are more or less run well, good intention. It sounds like we're speaking to a very, very small minority. I mean, I guess it's not 1%, but it's still the minority. Is it not just a problem of HR, bad hiring and bad owners and negligence? Is it not the human factor? What if it's not the system? I think the interesting part from my perspective is that you have the five or 10% that are really bad actors in the industry. And then we have the mediocre middle. And I think the challenges around that really relate to setting people up to fail. And that's where I see the system's failure. Whether it's the CNA that is assigned 12 residents to deliver care to, which is not possible, that's administration's decision or the owner's decision to understaff, to knowingly understaff the building. And that's going to inevitably lead to bad outcomes. And so that's a systems issue. That, that's, that's the provider's fault from my perspective. So how would, you, how would you correct something like that? Would you just make a law and say you can't do 12 uh, residents per CNA? Or do you think that this is just putting a Band-Aid on the problem and we need to move into how we redo everything? So I think staffing, Peter, is probably the toughest issue out there. There are states that are trying to pass laws. I think Rhode Island just passed a law in the Senate. I don't know if it was passed in the House yet in, in Rhode Island, setting minimum standards, staffing standards. And and I think it's important to have a floor, not a, not a ceiling. But it's all about the acuity and knowing your residents. And so you have to staff under current regulations, staff to the acuity of your residents. So I advocate 
knowing your residents better. There's a thing called uh, a facility assessment that is under an annual mandate from a regulatory perspective. I think you should be doing monthly facility assessments, at least as it pertains to resident acuity, to make sure you're staffing appropriately. You can't have a hard and fast number and think that that's going to meet everyone's needs. And it depends on the residents who are in your building. And so staffing, I think, is really the toughest issue. There's also a presumption being made, I think, out there that apparently staff grows on trees, and that's not the case. And so why do we have staffing shortages? Well, like I said, I was a monitor in Mississippi. The facilities were paying the certified nurses aid $7.95 an hour, which to me is really unconscionable to deliver the, the, work, in the work in the toughest job out there. And this is what you're compensating it with. So that's where I think you get into, well, we don't get paid enough by Medicaid. We don't have enough money to pay our staff. So we underpay our staff. And then you start chasing your tail because then that, that staff will go down the street where they're paying eight and a quarter. And so how do we retain staff and how do we recruit staff? So it all sort of has to fit together. It's a giant puzzle, but you have to look at it as such and not just sort of fix things you know, willy nilly. You have to look at how are we going to re recruit? How are we going to retain staff? And it doesn't always have to be just about money. I mean, if you treat people with respect, for example, my mother used to have care conferences and I would say, I'd like to have the, nur the nurse's aide there. Well, we don't have the nurse's aides there. I said, well, my mother's care conference, we will. Because how can, well, we interview the nurse's aide before we talk to you. I said, no, I want to hear directly from the nurse's aide. Because they're delivering 95% of the care. Who knows, who knew my mother best? Then the aides. And so it's so it's also a respect kind of situation that you're being bringing them in as part of the care team, and not just sort of dismissing their view of the world. We I always advocate for a lead CNA, someone who can be an advocate for the other CNAs in the building to speak on their behalf. And and so it's it's those kinds of it's that kind of thinking that needs to be more pervasive in this industry than what I've seen. You know, looking at this big picture, I mean, this COVID, this pandemic, as like I said earlier, it has killed residents and it has killed staff. And there was not the bullpen that staff were going to be coming in if others were afraid or others were sick, that magically people were going to appear. And they started paying COVID bonuses. Don't get me wrong, Peter. There was money found mm -hmm. to pay COVID bonuses to get people in the building because they needed them desperately. But what's going to happen post-COVID? They're going to go back to old staffing schedules, the payment, the COVID bonus is going to go away. And then what are we left with? You know, a return to the mediocre middle or worse? Mm. 
now that you've talked about the mediocre middle, I think that that kind of really speaks to the point where we we started off at the beginning and what would the system look like if we could redo it? Are there any are there any other industries that you look to and you admire? Are there any countries that you look to how they've handled uh, aging? Are there innovative ways that you think that we should just disrupt the industry and start anew, even though that that's, you might, might be idealistic and we're not going to see that in your lifetime nor mine. How, how would you start this conversation? And when you get, when you're optimistic, what, what, what's driving that optimism? I think, I think people are well-intentioned and want to do the right thing for the most part in the industry. And so how do we give them the tools to succeed? And so I think we have to lessen the uh, tension between the regulator and the regulated. And so how do we do that? I think it's better communication. So for example, uh, I'm sort of old school. I don't think people set out to do harm. Whatever happened, happened. Some events, some systems failures occurred and we look at it and we do a thorough root cause analysis as to why this failed. Why did this resident get harmed? And that in this survey world, what happens is, just to give you some background, it's called a 2567. The, surf, the surveyors come in, they write up the deficiency, the facilities write a plan of correction. Well, if you believe me, when I say that most people don't set out to do harm, what makes us so certain that the facility that harmed the individual has the ability, the competence to figure out exactly what went wrong and what should be demanded of the facility to evaluate that? So I'm of a belief that you do a root cause analysis on every deficiency that's cited. I don't care what level it's out, it could, whether it's an A-level deficiency or an L-level deficiency. And L means the worst, the, you, the whole system's going bad and everybody's at risk in the building. And that root cause really figures out why it went wrong and that way your plan of correction really addresses it. I can't tell you, Peter, if I read another plan of correction where someone developed a, a pressure injury that was avoidable and they say we're going to in-service our staff on turning and repositioning or something like that. And that's the sum total of the remedy. It's very frustrating. It's not acceptable. It goes deeper than that. What kind of wound care system do we have in our building? Who's responsible for it? Who had oversight is if we're sending people out to a wound care clinic, are they not performing what they're supposed to be doing? You know, you, you have to dig deeper. So it becomes when the regulators find something, it is a teaching moment. And if the facility can't figure it out, then the regulators, which they have authority to, to do, is they direct the plan of correction. They say, you have to do X, Y, and Z by this date. And this is how you need to do it. And we're going to come back and make sure that it got done. Okay. Then we, at least we know it's done. But this idea that we're just going to do a quick in-service for staff and given the turnover rate in nursing homes, 
half of that staff that attended the in-service is going to be gone in six months. So what are we doing? What are we fixing? We have to really apply, and I teach this in my patient safety class, the, the James Reason Swiss cheese approach, which is that there are layers of Swiss cheese that are defenses to bad things occurring and that these holes open and close. And when bad things happen is they've, all our defenses, these holes have opened up at the same time. We've got to build better defenses. And we have to use, I think, the regulatory system as a way, as a means of protecting residents. But that's clearly not the, the only way. The provider has to create this through their own internal compliance and ethics programs. There's a federal mandate that facilities have an effective compliance and ethics program. You know, what should that look like? It's a lot of training and education on ethics, doing the right thing for the right reasons, responsibility and accountability within the building and creating a culture of compliance. And that's part of the challenges that I've seen. What kind of culture is prevalent in the nursing home? Do people come forward and say, look, I made a mistake, but this is why. So we can address it as opposed to burying a mistake, because if they find out I made a mistake, I'm going to get fired. Hmm. I guess my question or kind of what comes to mind is you've done three plus decades of using legal sticks to enforce or castigate those that are not in line with the regulatory steps. And you already mentioned we have one of the most highly regulated industries, at least in the U.S. Is it not that we have too much regulation? If the margins are, are already small and they're cutting at staff, regulation is also a cost. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And I don't think I, when you read the regs, they're trying to not only set standards, but it's also when you read the guidance appendix PP for the state surveyors, it gives you information. It informs the provider what the standard of care is. And so it's not just the hammer. And you're right. I mean, I created the whole nursing home initiative, uh, federal initiative that the Department of Justice now uses. And now when I started, it was a quality of care initiative in the mid 90s. It morphed into the failure of care and now the worthless services. And I'm not sure what they're calling it now. The, you know, elder abuse nursing home initiative out of the Department of Justice. So I, I mean, I basically started the theory that providing care that's tantamount to no care at all and billing the federal government constitutes fraud under the Civil False Claims Act. And that was born out of seeing horrific problems and outcomes when I was with the state. And my very first case was because was driven by a guy named William Young, who was hospitalized in Philadelphia with 28 pressure injuries, that time called pressure sores. You may heard you know, wounds, the cubitus ulcers, whatever you want to call them. I mean, to the mm -hmm. bone. And I visited him in the hospital and it was horrific that what had gone on there. 
and what we learned was there was such siloed responses between nutrition and wound care that this guy could never heal himself he was so profoundly malnourished his skin was going to break down and so the regulations are clear and i think the regu regulations are needed i wouldn't back off regulation i think we have to have smarter enforcement and to be candid with you i think we have to remove the bad apples i i think going back to where we started with the discrepancy or the di dichotomy of how young people if they were in a certain scenario are treated so differently than older people i think we have to draw lines in the sand and don't get me wrong it is difficult and to close a nursing home and it is gut-wrenching and it is you want you can do it correctly you have to prepare residents you can't just give them notice and say we're we're closing tomorrow you have to prepare them you have to send them and i don't want to victimize them again but there has to be consequences to bad providers who knowingly provide grossly negligent care routinely based on a profit motive without consequence and when i mean without consequence without the fear of ultimate closure and termination from the program hmm. well that's that's uh heavy stuff david when i guess you and i started off the chat and we went straight for uh the ugly and then we just wrapped up with the mediocre middle with the bad um are there any happy stories any good stories are there facilities that you have called upon uh to help you with uh facilities that you've closed any operators owners that inspire you and um you know when you started shopping around for for your mother and when you think about yourself as you get older what well, wh where's the green light where's the light at the end of the tunnel when when you go through your 30 years of good bad and ugly yeah no i think it's a it's a great question and i think you start with the uh not-for-profit world where the success rates are greater um unfortunately that facility that where that my mother was in um just sold to a different provider and now i'm worried about what's going to happen there because i have friends parents who are in that building and it's gonna you know i'm concerned and i'm hearing already that the first thing that is changes the food so um you know cutting costs around food is is sort of a, a big a start and so the good i know i want to be positive here so what i can tell you is when i've been in buildings where you feel it's alive you have residents engaged there's a lot of music and people are smiling and the staff are involved with the activities with them and we have i've seen that i've seen this kind of quality of life where there's this engagement with staff and the residents and and very positive things and people are out of their rooms nothing good can happen in a in a resident room peter left alone I view it as the swamp, that something bad is going to happen. Resident, where do we think falls typically occur? 
95 percent of the falls occur 90 percent of the falls occur in resident rooms and what are they doing they're going to and from the bathroom so we know so what what do we need to do seems to me that it's self-evident get them out of the room so how do we get people who are reluctant to come out of the room we have activities we have some sort of uh, the people that are engaged to come out that that you build these kinds of relationships um and and the places alive music games i mean i look at the activities calendars you know the world doesn't end or stop at six o'clock after dinner should have evening activities you know so it's so that's where i've seen people who are committed to making these facilities home-like think about what what makes you happy when you come home you may have have had a i know these days everybody's stuck at home (laughs) but there was a time when we went out and we did things and and so that doesn't change so uh facilities that have been effective from the minute you get in they do uh, surveys as to what is it that you like to do what interests you for me you know watching the super bowl coming up is a big deal i've been in buildings where i've said to them are you holding the super bowl party you have a significant amount of residents both male and female who would enjoy make a big deal out of super bowl weekend you know serve hot dogs hamburgers whatever you have the game on you you put up the two teams logos whatever you make a big deal out of these events and they may not be everybody but it's you know it, it's it's something that people can relate to mm-hmm. or if it's college basketball or college you know, so sports is one thing and so i think that those facilities and i've seen them who individualize care plans who individualize interests and figure out some people like baking or cooking or you know going going out to museums or having tri- outings once a month in some way just a drive out in the park. I mean, now you can't really do a whole lot. You can get outside and 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 see the what's going on in the world. Um, go to parks, things like that. Um, these are the places that really are resident focused and resident centered, and they're successful. Your work seems that it's often going after the bad guys. Um, what's, what, what's your proudest moment professionally? Well, so let me clarify since 2005, I've really been consulting with the providers community and the government. I'm right in the middle and is either as a monitor or even retained as a consultant. So going after them is a portion of it, but helping them is another portion of that as well. I'm squarely in the middle. And trying to get, because again, what motivates me is increasing care delivery systems and protecting residents who are so vulnerable. So I think that that the creation of the nursing home uh, initiative, that's all about, and, and I have to tell you why it's so important to me, because it's not about the money. Yes, I took money back from the bad providers, but the most important remedy that I imposed in all of my cases were 
couple things. One, a monitor, someone to go in, sort of what I'm doing now. You know, I left the government and became a monitor, a quality monitor, and and it's my consulting practice. It's really driven to improve resident care. And so creating that initiative was not just about the money, but the idea that you have monitors that will assist. It's not a gotcha program. Again, it's the idea of trying to help people avoid bad outcomes. But we also would attach policies and procedures to instruct around diabetes care and wound care and nutrition. And so it was educational. And by the time I left the government in 2005, I had done 13 or 14 cases. Thousands of residents were being better protected. So that was very gratifying to me. Mm. I mean, I had, it's hard for me because I've been very, very fortunate in my career to have seen government really work to benefit individuals. I know there's some skepticism now that the government's broken, but when I was with the Department of Aging, I was sort of co-author of six pieces of legislation or so. It may have been even more that really benefited older adults, whether it was guardianship reform or protective services, or it was uh, licensing of daily living centers or a, a, a rebate program from, we ran the PACE program, which was medications based and, and getting rebates from the manufacturers. So we had more money to put into aging services. You know, this is all, I've been very fortunate, Peter. So it's hard for me mm. to say, so I've seen government work and I've seen government not work so well. And in my current role, it's all about improving care. This is obviously a little bit of speculation, but moving, we're, we're almost a year into COVID. And since this is 10 to 15% below uh, national average, depending on where you're at, what region, what state, how big your facility is. Are you hopeful that facilities are going to survive the next the next year? Do you think that the there's going to be a large um, consolidation of the market? Are you scared, anxious? I'm. I'm uh, I think it's uh, choppy waters. Let me just put it that way. If I hate to go I've suddenly become a sailor, but there's some serious chop in, in this in the horizon that I see. I think this this whole um, pandemic has exposed um, some real fundamental flaws in this industry. Um, and, and I think that there will be more consolidation. There probably will be in additional bankruptcies once the, you know, they propped up the industry with some significant funding to keep them going. Um, mm -hmm. Again, we'll see how this all plays out over time, but I think we're in from, for some, some rough times in the industry. Sounds that, sounds that way. David, are there any, are there any questions that I haven't asked you or aspects, aspects of our conversation and a re redoing of the system 
that you would like to share? Well, I think you've asked most of them, Peter, and it's been great, and I appreciate it. I, I think that what the pandemic and some of the responses that I heard over the last year really raises the issue of ageism. And, and I think we should have a frank discussion about how older people are viewed in this society. I think there are other societies that treat their elderly much better than we do here. And I'm not certain why that's the case. I mean, I guess we can all draw on our own experiences. I was always taught to respect my elders. And I think that's what motivates me in all this. I'm not certain that's where we are today. And there were decisions, there was discussion in Utah, for example, of who would get uh, who would get the vaccines and, and prioritizing and whether you don't prioritize the elderly or include them or whatever it was. I think this has raised a, a bigger discussion about who we are as a society and and what we think about our elderly and how they should be treated. Um, nursing homes were, you know, the, the ugly stepchild. Everyone focused on the hospitals and they can't overburden the hospital system. The nursing home bore the brunt of this virus. There's no question in my mind. I mean, this, it was, it was awful and not unexpected. Mm -hmm. And, and, and if we learn, and I'm the hopeful part of me that says, okay, we can, public policy for years has been driving the bus towards in-home care. People don't want to go into nursing homes. Everyone wants to remain in the community. And I get that. But there is a population segment that will need nursing home care. And they're vulnerable, whether through cognitive impairments or physical impairment. And we have to make it a priority. Going back to your, your comment about how our society perceives the aging and the elderly, I'm interested in your opinion. I mean, I have mine. What, what would be your armchair sociologist guess at why we perceive, think, treat, respect, protect the elderly differently in the U.S.? I think it's ageism. I think it's ageism. I think we should have a full and frank discussion of what we think of older people. Hmm. And, and, uh, and their value to society after a certain point. And, and I think uh, that, is, that is a discussion that should be had in the post-pandemic world. You, uh, you inspired me to track down um, someone who, who, who's covered this topic, uh, who's written about this topic, because um, you, you left that question in my mind lingering. Anything else that I haven't asked or that we haven't covered that you think is worth bringing up? Because that last one was a gem. No, I think I think it's I think we're good, Peter. Well, David, I I like to wrap things up uh, with two final questions, and um, the the first one being, if you were to start all over again your career in long term care tomorrow, with what you know today, what advice would you give your younger self? I think the the focus on compliance 
with regulatory requirements um, is a two-way street. And I think that I, I would hope that regulators and regulated would have a better relationship and, mm. and that it would be something in which it would be clearly in bad instances, the appropriate penalty would be delivered firmly and, and swiftly, but that we would have a, a, a better approach in the relationship between the regulator and the regulator. I think that's a good ask of the system and those of us who work in it, and also good advice to give to someone who's just coming in. Uh, lastly, David, I know that there are going to be listeners in the audience to the podcast to this episode that are going to want to track you down um, and hear you uh, speak and hear your thoughts and potentially ask you for, for help. Where can they find you online? You can get me at uh, www.dhoffmanassoc.com. Or just Google David Hoffman, Philadelphia. Um, although I, I have to be careful with that, Peter, because there's a David Hoffman who teaches at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, so uh, you don't want him. You want the, you want the <laughs> I, one at Drexel. So I think could... I think I Googled you the first time and I found the right David Hoffman. So <laughs> okay. I, I, th I think that you've got a Google presence that'll be fine especially okay. for anyone in our industry. David, it's been uh, a pleasure to just hear your insight from, from above, um, from the trenches, from the legal angle. Thank you so much for your time today. And, and truly, uh, I look forward to uh, following, following you more and hearing your advice as I get deeper into this industry. Thank you so much. Thanks, Peter. It's been my pleasure. Visit ltcheroes.com to join our Facebook group for nurses and our exclusive LinkedIn group for LTC owners. Visit ltcheroes.com for your exclusive access today. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit Experience.Care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today.